Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. With recent launches and publicity stunts, we ask just how do we protect space from ourselves? Now, we've all seen War of the Worlds, and we know the dangers that bacteria can bring to an unknown planet and unknown species. So how do we protect not only ourselves from invading aliens and bacteria coming in, but also us contaminating other planets? That's where sterilization protocols kick in. We'll talk about that and more in space exploration this week. So if you love exciting televised space launches, you may be aware of the fantastic stunt that Elon Musk has undertaken, where he's launched a Tesla Roadster, or at least the shell of one, into space. And that is amazingly cool as a marketing stunt, and a very good proof of the Falcon Heavy's ability to carry heavy payloads into space. But many scientists and people who are interested about the conservation of space have raised certain alarm bells, particularly at Elon Musk's initial claim to fire it at Mars. And to really ask about why people are concerned about that, we need to delve into the Protocols for Planetary Protection, which are organised by the Committee on Space Research, or COSPA. It's all part of wrapped up in big United Nations treaties and international agreements. But really, it starts to sound a lot like Star Trek, and their prime directive. In fact, Star Trek's concepts are modelled after some of these UN declarations. But basically, the premise is the same as what happens in Star Trek. If you're going out boldly where no human has gone before, well, you need to make sure that you're careful. Because not only could you bring back potentially damaging life to Earth in the return of any samples, but you are also quite possibly taking dangerous samples to other planets, asteroids, you name it. And these samples, whether you're aware of them or not, whether they be your detrimus, hair, skin follicles, all the way down to bacteria, extremophiles living on the shells of your spaceship, or even just some spores from some microbes, they could all impact life on another planet. And you are potentially carrying them with you. So those that are involved in space exploration are keenly aware of their responsibilities to protect the rest of the universe from potential contamination. And there are a lot of good reasons why you want to consider this. And those good reasons are also why some people were up in arms about Elon Musk's stunt. So let's take a step back and look at why you would want to protect the planet and other planets from potential contamination. The first reason why you want to do this is obviously to protect Earth. If you've seen War of the Worlds, or read the book, or heard the fantastic audio play, you'll be aware of why bacteria can be particularly threatening to a species that has never encountered it before. That's why the aliens were defeated in War of the Worlds. They were susceptible to waterborne bacteria. Much in the same way as that people in indigenous cultures and first nations of certain places were decimated when settlers arrived from somewhere else carrying diseases that they were immune or at least less damaged by. But those people, original indigenous people, First Nations of those places, did not have the protections or experience and rapidly died out. Apply that to an intergalactic level. There are all kinds of things potentially out there that could ravage not just our life, but also life on Earth. So you want to make sure nothing like that comes into Earth and potentially destroys human life, plant life, 
and our ecosystems. That being said, we also want to protect other planets from being potentially destroyed, much in the same way as that Earth could be destroyed. It's no good eventually finding life somewhere else in the universe only for us to destroy it. That would be particularly sad and devastating for all involved. So we really do want to make sure that nothing leaks out or leaks in. The other reason why we want to make sure we are particularly careful in our decontamination of spaceships is, well, if you're trying to detect life on an alien planet, it's not very useful if your spaceship keeps repeating and returning false positives when it's actually just detecting life that your spaceship brought there. That's not useful science and very frustrating for the scientists involved. So those are two good reasons why we want to protect our solar system and other places that we visit from potentially being exposed to human or life from Earth and how we need to protect the other planets from coming and potentially bring back stuff to Earth that may ravage our own planet. So that's why you want to consider these things. And these concepts aren't exactly new. In 1956, the International Astronautical Federation basically had a large congress, and they agreed that, yes, we need to do something to deal with the planetary contamination. And it wasn't till 1964 where this international group really came together with a practical strategy for preventing contamination. These are ratified as part of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty, which was signed in 1967. And various countries from all over the world review these strategies and these rules basically every two years. And it forms the legal basis. There's actually a legal agreement between countries that's part of the Outer Space Treaty. Now, many countries have signed, obviously, the Outer Space Treaty, but not all. But big names, such as Australia, China, the United States, Europe, the USSR, now Russia, have all signed it. So it's pretty hard to find places that haven't. So how does this big rule and legal framework define how we protect planets? Well, first, there's five different categories. The first category is its submission to a location where there's no real direct interest in life, or the chemical evolution of it, such as the Sun or Mercury. In those instances, no specific planetary protections are required. A Category 2 mission is a mission to a location of some significant interest for the chemical evolution of, li of life, but really only a remote chance that any spacecraft-borne contamination could compromise investigation. So this includes planets like Venus, any of the comets, or even the Moon. So here you only need to do simple documentation to outline potential impact targets and an end mission report. So it's not really that stringent a requirement. Now, Category 3 and 4 are the big ones. So Category 3 and 4, uh, 3 deals with flyby missions and 4 deals with lander or probe missions. But both are when your target planet or place to visit includes a significant chance that life could exist on it or be of interest to chemical evolution or the origin of life and that a significant chance that you could compromise such life. And when you do that, depending on the category, you need to take all kinds of precautions. For Category 3, 
orbital missions. You need to make sure you don't crash into the planet. This is easier said than done. In 1999, a NASA mission managed to crash into the surface of Mars. It had only been rated for Category 3 because it wasn't actually intended to land on Mars. But because someone forgot to use metric units instead of Imperial, the thing crashed into the surface of, the, of Mars, potentially exposing Mars to contamination from Earth because it hadn't been decontaminated. Now, planets that are sort of included in these categories include Mars, Europa, and Encleatus. And that's one of the reasons why the Cassini mission was crashed into Saturn, to protect it from any potential contamination. Now, for the Category 4, the landers or probe missions, there's some subcategories. In places like Mars, we really have to classify it even further. Now, for example, if you have a lander that's not searching for marginal life, look, you can just use basic sterilization and have a maximum of 300,000 spores per spacecraft which seems like a lot, but actually is quite a stringent requirement considering how prevalent bacteria are. Now, if you actually are a lander that's trying to search for life, well, you need to follow much, much more stringent requirements. And this is one of the amazing reasons why the Spirit and Curiosity rovers weren't actually rated for this level of searching. So when they thought they found water, they couldn't actually test it because they were afraid of contaminating it and they would be breaching the protocols. Now, if there's any Martian special region, one where we think there's an incredibly high chance of life occurring, then you need to sterilize that spaceship to a really, really high level. And that's 30 spores in total on the spacecraft. So the base level of Category 4 categorization let you have 300,000. For serious life-searching missions, we limit it to 30 per spacecraft. So that's a pretty tough requirement. There's also Category 5, just to mention briefly, but that mostly does deals with returning and bringing back samples to Earth. So how do you clean a spaceship? Well, the old school method used on the Viking Mars landers was sterilizing the spaceship using dry heat sterilization. So do some basic cleaning first. And when I say basic, I mean really sophisticated, but basic in the comparison. Then there were the probes themselves then heat treated for 30 hours at 125 degrees Celsius. And that was believed enough to radically reduce the amount of spores or bacteria prevalent on the aircraft. But the problem is most modern materials can't hack that level of heat for that length of time. So we have to look at other sterilization methods, sometimes dousing it in vaporized hydrogen peroxide to kill everything, or maybe using ethylene oxide, which is often used in the medical industry, which is often used for things that aren't compatible with dunking it in hydrogen peroxide. We can also bombard it with radiation or electron beams, which could certainly help. Now, you might want to potentially dump your entire spacecraft in supercritical carbon dioxide snow. And basically, the idea here is to starve all life. And it's actually really effective on organic compounds. But even once you've done all of this, there's still a chance for life to survive. And the reason is, extremophiles can almost travel the depths of space themselves, survive 
rapid changes in temperature freeze themselves up and then, when the conditions are right, come back to life again. You've heard of a water bear. They do exactly the same thing. These small little cell- microcellular creatures that basically starve them and lock themselves down until water becomes prevalent again and then unleash themselves even if it's 10, 50, 100 years later. And life is pretty weird like that. It can find ways to survive. No matter if you bake it in a massive oven for a long period of time, bombard it with radiation, or bombard it with chemicals, there's always a chance that life might survive, which is why there's not an absolute criteria, but more a kind of realistic limit. We're just trying to lower the probability. Now, look, This is all well and good. We've got our cleaning methods. We know which planets we have to protect. But really, is that enough? Well, one of the big arguments put forward by Alberto G. Farron and Dirk Schulz-Makuk in an article published in Nature really says that, look, we could really scale back our planetary protection. And really, their main argument for this is that if you look at Mars and you look at Earth, you can see that meteorites are quite frequently found with Martian soil on Earth and vice versa. And what this is telling us is that material is transferring between Earth and Mars. And it's feasible if you can look at bacterial life that has survived that in some of these samples. So it's plausible then that life could have transferred from one location to the other. And then if that's already happening naturally, what are we really preventing with the contamination procedures? Now, look, okay, that's a valid question. But because we can't prove that there's no life there in the past, and we don't know if life has gotten between the two places in the past, and also that the new type of life that we have on Earth now hasn't gotten there, we still need to do our best to protect and clean up after ourselves, if nothing else from common courtesy, but also because we don't know what new, potential, amazing, crazy forms of life that evolved in either place since the geological timescales. So next time you think about leaping forward into the great unknowns of space, keep in mind that Like Star Trek proposes, we need to make sure not to potentially put at risk any life that we accomplish. And there's many reasons for doing so. Well, we want to protect our planet, and we want to be nice and protect other planets as well, but it just makes things really difficult to detect life on another planet if you're not sure if you're detecting new life or just life you brought with you. And above all of that, it'd be incredibly devastating to search the universe for signs of other life across it, only to discover that we crush it on the very first encounter with it. So no matter what the alien invasion movies may suggest, if we do encounter other life in our universe, we want to make sure we do our best to protect it for both research and to be a good species and inhabitant of the universe. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we found out how we keep our spacecrafts clean and prevent unwanted contamination back to Earth and from us potentially destroying any chances of life existing out there in the universe. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.